Please bow your heads with me as we ask God's blessing on the public preaching of His Word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are glad that you have revealed yourself to us in your Holy Word. We would not know you. We would remain hardened in our sin, our unbelief, our ignorance, our deadness to the things of you. If you had not sent out your living word by your spirit to awaken us. So feed us now on the bread of life, Jesus Christ. We admit that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. So feed us now, we pray. Fill our hearts with your word. Make us hungry for the food that you have prepared for us to eat. Give us a new appetite. And may we find that your word nourishes us afresh. For Jesus' sake, amen. <clears throat> Many Christians today talk as if the world is the greatest threat to the church. Changing views on science, creation, human sexuality, or other worldviews altogether. Secularism, humanism, atheism, statism, or other world religions. Christians have been wringing their hands over the culture wars for decades, maybe even centuries. But what if one of the more insidious threats to the church lurks on the inside. As we've traced the birth and growth of the church in the first five chapters of Acts, we've seen the gospel overcoming external threats from those who don't believe. Persecution. This morning, the preached Word of God encounters a different kind of threat, less like an assault from the outside and more like a disease attacking the body from the inside. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Acts 6, 1 through 7. We'll read it, and then we'll walk through it again together and draw out some applications for our life together as a local church. Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, in, the in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows, the Hebrews, the Hellenist widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. 
And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the context is not just the addition, but the multiplication, the exponential numerical growth of the disciples. Tons of good things are happening. Outsiders are holding the church in high regard. Remember, many outsiders wouldn't dare join them, but they respected them from afar because of everything that was happening. Peter and John are freed from prison in a win for religious liberty. Solomon's portico is filling up with thousands of new converts who become new members of the church. People are repenting of their sins, trusting in Jesus. Jesus is being exalted. The lobby is full. The singing is loud. The fellowship is sweet. The preaching is apostolically awesome. Every sermon is a home run. Healings are happening. Giving is up because members are liquidating assets to meet needs. The Spirit is present and moving. The Word is doing its work. Everyone looks forward to Sundays, and even during the week, Christians are gathering together for prayer and Bible study and biblical conversation. It is the best of times. And it is just now, during these best of times, that a complaint arises from within the church along cultural and family fault lines. Hellenists here were not ethnic Gentiles. Ethnic Gentiles don't get integrated into the church until Peter preaches to Cornelius in Acts 10. These Hellenists are ethnic Jews who speak Greek as their primary language. They're Greek speakers, Hellenists. They don't speak Hebrew or Aramaic as their first language, like, ethnic, like most ethnic Jews, even though they're also ethnic Jews. They're ethnic Jews who speak Greek as their first language. Language And they're probably Jews who have previously been scattered over the Roman Empire and the Diaspora, and they've moved back to Jerusalem and brought both their cultural Greekness and their Greek language with them. The word for complaint, though, here is a very specific word. It's talking under your breath. It's behind-the-scenes, grumbling, muttering, mumbling things to each other. One raises their eyebrows and the other furrows their brow. It's these kind of conversations that make you go, or, my dad, bless his heart, we used to make fun of him because he had what we called a frog face that he would make when he thought something was ridiculous. It would be, this is the face he would make. He'd, be, he'd go like this. We called it the frog face. And those kind of conversations are happening that about other people. The Hellenists are having these kind of conversations with each other and maybe with others about the Hebrews. 
And they were saying things that made other people go, or it's all under their breath. It's not the standing up, making a scene at the members meeting complaint. It's taking your best friend a couple of pews further back and telling them under your breath what you really think about how the church is going and how the leaders are handling it. It's the play date with the kids or the 6 a.m. breakfast where your quiet criticisms find a sympathetic ear or you hope they do. And it's the same Greek word for Israel's grumbling in the wilderness and it doesn't just happen everywhere. It's the word for grumbling in Exodus 16 when the Israelites realize they don't have any food in the wilderness. And that's when God responds to their grumbling with the manna. It's the word for grumbling that happens in Numbers 11 when they complained in the hearing of the Lord about the manna itself. Man, there's a lot of manna. We're getting tired of this manna. Manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna for dinner, manna in the soup, manna on my toast. And that made God's anger burn. And then he appoints elders to help Moses shoulder the load of ministry. It's the word in Numbers 14 for the people's attitude when they chicken out at entering the promised land because they saw giants there. Ah, the Nephilim! All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Hey, man, I got a two-year-old. I ain't going in there. Would it not be better for us to have gone back to Egypt? Or better yet, don't you think it would have been better for us to go back to Egypt? I kind of want to turn around, don't you? Shouldn't somebody say something to Moses? This is crazy. What are we getting ready to do? Do you want to take your four-year-old in there? Did you see the size of those guys? This is nuts. Notice they didn't grumble to Moses and Aaron, they just grumbled against Moses and Aaron, behind their backs, to each other, under their breath, smiling and waving at people as they walked by. That's what's going on in Acts 6. Same word in number 17, for Korah is grumbling against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. God says, thus I will make to cease from among me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. God doesn't like grumbling any more than a dad likes grumbling from his kids about what's for dinner. Manna again? And God's like, uh, it's a miracle. And you're in the desert, so manna's what's for dinner. And I don't want to hear it. So there arises a grumbling that reminds you of Israel's complaining in the wilderness. I mean, it only hap- that word for grumbling only happens one other time in the whole Old Testament besides those grumbling in the wilderness occurrences in Greek. So this is an uh-oh moment if you know your Old Testament. If you're a Greek speaker, you're reading your Greek New Testament as a first century Christian, and you're like, uh-oh, this is trouble. This is a yellow light blinking on the dashboard of your car. 
tell me this is not going to end up in Israel 2.0. And these Greek-speaking Jews had a beef, and they were all talking about it under their breath in a way that eventually got back to the apostles somehow. Their widows were being overlooked, underserved, maybe even unserved altogether in the daily distribution of food to the needy. So this is not racial. They're all Jews. But it is probably very personal. These Hellenized Jews had moved back to Jerusalem from the diaspora, the geographic spread of the Jews after the exile. They may not have had family who had stayed back in Jerusalem. They were probably a cultural minority, so the locals are not exactly earmarking their liquidated assets to go to the Hellenist widows because they don't know them as well. They're not family. At the very least, the apostles can't keep up with all the needs, so it's accidental neglect at best. Nor is it the widows complaining themselves. It's their families. Grown sons, daughters, grandkids that are getting concerned about grandma. Grumbling. But these families, again, are not just grumbling about the fact that mom and grandma are getting shortchanged and going hungry. They're grumbling against a whole people group in the congregation. They're grumbling against the Hebrew-speaking Jews as a people group in the church as if to blame them. It's not just grandma's not getting enough to eat. It's those Hebrews don't care about us. Or those Hebrew families are hoarding all the benevolence money or food for themselves, and that means my grandma's not getting enough. And can you believe it? the apostles act like they're oblivious to the whole thing. Everybody's incredulous here. you believe this? I can't believe this is going on. You think we ought to be able to put up with this? Come on, man. After all, the apostles are Hebrews too. You really think that's a coincidence, an accident? That's what's going on. Those are the kind of conversations they're having. How, how in the world can Peter be oblivious? How does John not know? Raised eyebrow, furrowed brow, frog face. That's the scuttlebutt at the water cooler. It's become us versus them within the church across cultural, linguistic, family barriers. You ever been around two people speaking a different language, and you feel like they're talking about you or against you. And they kind of look at you and smile, and then they kind of go on. You're like, that's what's happening in the church. It's like that in Solomon's portico among Christians. Now you can see how this would happen. Thousands of people have been added to the church in just a few weeks. That's wonderful. That's great. This is revival. This is supernatural. It's wonderful. More and more Christians, more and more godly people liquidating assets, bringing the money to the apostles' feet to distribute it as necessary, yet more and more necessities to meet. 
And if the situation is still the same as it was in chapter 5, then the 12 apostles are still doing all the distributing, like they did with Barnabas' stuff, and Ananias' and Sapphira's offering. At the same time that the apostles are doing all the preaching, praying, counseling, public leading, and shepherding oversight of such a fast-growing and vast congregation. These are growing pains. There are more needs to meet than servants to meet them. So what do the apostles do? Well, interestingly enough, they don't just call an elders meeting. They call a members meeting. Hmm? Look at your Bible. They call together the whole number of the disciples. And they initiate and lead a whole church family conversation with both Hebrews and Hellenists in the room. They bring that complaint and the difficulty it presents out in the open for the whole church family to handle it all together, both Hellenists and Hebrews all together. And here's what they say. It's not right. It's not fitting. It's not appropriate that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve, to deacon tables. So yeah, the widows were being neglected, but the apostles were so busy distributing charity to widows and failing at that, that the public ministry of the Word would begin to suffer if it hadn't already suffered. The apostles were distracted by a good and necessary thing from doing the best and most necessary thing. This situation was becoming untenable. And that's literally what they say. They don't say it's not godly or it's not virtuous or it's immoral. They say literally it's not pleasing, it's not fitting, it's not satisfying, it's not desirable. It's inappropriate for us to quit preaching in order to serve tables. If Peter were a Protestant liberal... He would have never said that. Right? If all Peter wants the church to be is a social welfare club, a goody two-shoes, good works engine, a social reform institution, you think Peter would ever have said what he just said? No way. Protestant liberals are happy to quit preaching in order to serve tables. They think they should. But that's unacceptable to Peter. Peter will not neglect the word ministry for the widow ministry. He won't do that. Now, it's not that Peter and the apostles think they're too good or too important to serve tables or to love people in practical ways. He's not saying, hey, it's inappropriate for me, Peter, to neglect the ministry of the word to serve tables. It's not inappropriate for His Majesty the Apostle. That's not what he's saying. Peter's not being an elitist here. Remember, Peter's a fisherman. He's not afraid to get his hands dirty. It's that the word of God itself is too important to neglect for any other priority in the church, no matter how good and necessary that priority is. 
The apostles are simply called to a different and dedicated way of loving the congregation that not everyone in the congregation is called or equipped to do. It's not an excuse to escape serving. It's a responsibility to remain devoted to serving in a focused role. The preached Word of God is what motivates, informs, and sustains every other ministry in the congregation. Apostolic devotion to prayer and the Word is not a neglect of love for people. It's the expression of love for people in a way that is often misunderstood. There are ways of loving the congregation that only the apostles were equipped to do. If the word suffers, everything else is going to suffer. It is the preached word of God that produces, informs, feeds, strengthens, and regulates every other ministry in the church. If the preaching goes away, the church goes away because it's the preaching of the church that distinguishes the church from every other institution in society. No other institution is entrusted with proclaiming the gospel. The church is entrusted to do that, and there is no plan B. And if the preaching goes away, then the church becomes just another social and economic relief agency or a religious social club. But if urgent practical needs go unmet, then complaints arise. Divisions appear, the apostles get distracted, and the ministry grinds to a halt. Not because of persecution from without, mind you, but because of complaints from within. So, the apostles make the congregation aware of the problem. They make the congregation aware that they're aware of the problem. And they say, guys, we cannot keep doing everything. This is not sustainable, not even for Christ's hand-picked apostles. We can't do all the preaching and all the serving and all the distributing of mercy. We're starting to neglect the preaching because there's so much serving to do. That is not pleasing to God. That's not pleasing to us. It's not even pleasing to you. And it's not fitting for our office as apostles or for your membership in the congregation. This is not appropriate. Things ought not to be done like this. And they say this to the whole congregation in a members meeting. But they also come to the congregation with a solution in verse 3. It's a solution, though, that requires something from the congregation itself. Look there in verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. That is the genesis of the distinction between deacons 
and elders, servants and preacher leaders, and the division of labor in the church. Deacons serve precisely so that elders can devote themselves to prayer and public word ministry. The deacons don't serve in order to get the apostles to see that they should be doing everything also that the deacons should be doing. That's not why the deacons serve. The deacons serve so that the apostles can keep doing everything that the apostles were already doing, devoting themselves to preaching and prayer. That is how necessary deacons and deaconesses are to the ministry of the word in the church. Their absence weakens the public ministry of the word. An abundance of faithful deacons and deaconesses, on the other hand, strengthens the public ministry of the word because it strengthens the reception of the word, it quells complaints and distractions so that people can hear the preached word of God without thinking of all the needs that they have that aren't being met by the church. But look at what it takes to have good deacons. Look in your Bible. It takes a congregation that knows itself. You guys pick, the apostles said. You guys look around, see who among you is full of the spirit and of wisdom. The word pick is related to the word oversee, the widows are being overlooked. The preaching is in danger of being overlooked. So congregation, look to it yourself. See to it. Scope it out. Look into this matter and see who would be good to oversee it. You have a job to do, a care to tend to here. The question is, does the congregation know itself well enough to pick the right people who meet the right criteria? Now, why do you have to be full of the Spirit and wisdom just to serve tables? I mean, come on, anybody can take a meal to somebody, right? Well, yes and no. Depends on who you're taking the meal to and how mad they are that they haven't gotten one yet. Hmm? You better know more than just a recipe if you're taking that meal to that person. Again, what's the reason for appointing these people? It's a division along cultural and family lines. Our grandma is going hungry while the other grandmas are getting plenty. Well, what else could it be but that our grandma is a cultural Greek and theirs is a cultural Hebrew, just like the apostles who are distributing the benevolence funds? I smell a conflict of interests. They rigged the system. I'm not sure I like this whole Christianity thing. If this is how it's going to work, maybe I'll just go back to being a Jew and go to synagogue instead of coming to the church. I don't like this. It's making me mad. Y'all are hypocrites. You're just serving your own. When 
When you're dealing with people who have a grievance against a whole group of other people in the church, you'd better be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And you better be full of love for your fellow church members. And you better be humble. And you better be able to listen to somebody who's about ready to bite your head off when you're trying to give them a meal. You better be able to identify with the fact that, hey, they kind of have a point. They do have a complaint. This shouldn't be happening. So you're not just meals on wheels. You're tamping down tempers of people who are defensive for their own grandma. You're serving in ways that need to either promote, maintain, or repair unity. You're meeting needs so everybody in the congregation isn't getting mad at the apostles while they're listening to the sermon. And I can't even listen to Peter's sermon because I'm thinking, Grandma's starving. So look at the decisioning model here. The elders say... Congregation, here's the problem. We get it. Here's how we want to handle this problem. And here's your responsibility in handling it. You bring us names. We'll vet them. And then we'll appoint them. And that will free us up for preaching and prayer. That is elder-led congregationalism where elders lead the congregation to take responsibility for serving itself via the appointment of deacons so that the elders are freed up to preach and pray. That's what's going on. In other words, the apostles did not want the whole congregation viewing the apostles themselves as the solution to every problem or as service providers or as CEOs or as empathizers in chief. No. They're proclaimers of God's word and prayers for God's people and for God's purposes. And notice There's not a hint of complaint from the congregation about that solution. This is really encouraging. The apostles' suggestion pleased the whole congregation. The congregation's unity in responding to the elders' leadership is so encouraging there. This is thousands of people agreeing together about how they're being led and what they're being led to do and how they're being led to participate and actually take responsibility for the complaint that they themselves raised. The apostles make a suggestion that throws the responsibility back on the congregation, and that, that is pleasing to the congregation. Nobody's saying, ah, that's a cop-out, Peter. You got to do this. No, 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 no. It's not what they say. They say, 
That's leadership. That's a good plan. Let's do it. We're all in. The congregation is pleased that the elders are giving them a job to do. And this congregation, think about this. Think about it. This congregation is probably not a bunch of young single people with a bunch of time on their hands whose jobs are limited to a nine-to-five or just working 35 hours a week and don't have wives and husbands and children at home to take care of. They have grandmothers at home to take care of that are not getting cared for. They have extra, they have more than you and me. They have grandma. Most of them probably had husbands, wives, children. They all had jobs and roles, responsibilities to juggle. Some of them were even slaves who worked long, hard hours. Others were wealthy bosses with lots of responsibilities at work and at home. They all had problems. They all had allergies. They all had sicknesses. They all had sorrows. Tough life. Yep. Tougher back then. And none of them had indoor plumbing. None of them had electricity. None of them had a dishwasher. None of them have a clothes washer or dryer. None of them had any of the conveniences that we get to use today to make our lives easier. And it pleases them that the apostles are telling the congregation, you see to this need. You see to it. You agree together who should handle this besides us. Peter's like, I don't want to see any of the apostles' names on your list. And we'll throw our weight behind them, and we'll keep on devoting ourselves to preaching and teaching. That solution, the solution that demands that the congregation step up and take responsibility for its own needs and for its own complaints, that pleased the congregation. They had a good attitude about it. And why does this solution please the congregation? You ever think about that when you read Acts? Why did that please them? What mentality, what attitude creates a pleasure at being told this is your responsibility? How do you get there as a Christian, as a church member? I think it's precisely that they viewed their leaders as devoted preachers and prayers already. Not as CEOs, not as service providers, not as empathizers or even need meters. The congregation wants their leaders to stay devoted to preaching and prayer. And they want them to stay devoted to preaching and prayer so much that they're willing to be inconvenienced in order to take responsibility for the complaint that they themselves raised. And in verse 5, the church has very little trouble sorting it out from all appearances. They chose the seven, all of whom, by the way, have Greek names, not Hebrew names. I mean, there's no him and Han. There's no, I don't know about this. Well, who in the world is going to go No. They got the guys. Cream of the crop rose right to the top immediately. All had Greek names, fine with the apostles. They picked the men of godly character, best qualified both spiritually and culturally to relate 
to those who have the needs. They speak the language, share the concerns, know the hearts. They won't shoot themselves in the foot. These, these they set before the apostles, and the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them. The setting of these men before the apostles is the congregation's way of submitting their selections to the judgment and authority of the apostles. Here, these are the guys. What do you think? We want and need you as apostles to agree with our judgment, throw your weight behind their ministry, and commission them to this task. That's why the apostles lay their hands on them. The laying on of hands is the communication of authority to decide, distribute, delegate, and serve in the matters discussed. In other words, laying on of hands here is the handing over of the responsibility. It's the authority to handle the responsibility and the public apostolic support of their diaconal responsibility and authority to serve. To lay hands on is to make the hand off. These are our guys for this task. Congregation, these are the men. Here you go. This is the solution. This person is the solution to this problem. These are the men who are going to handle this. So if you have a question about that, go to them. If you have a complaint about that, go to them. If you have a need about that, go to them. Not because we don't love you as apostles, but because we do love you enough to stay devoted to the preaching of the Word and prayer, and so that shared servanthood in the life of the church makes an easier lift. You know those boxes that you bring home from Best Buy or from some whatever, appliance shop, team lift. I've tried to, stupidly, as a man does, try to lift those by myself or drag them. You end up breaking something, either the thing or your back. Team lift, man, team lift. That's the church. This is a team lift. Now what happens is verse 7 as a result, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. God's word itself is organic. It is living and active. It grows in influence. It's not just that the church grew. It's that the word grew. The Greek word that's translated grew there is grew. It means to grow. <laughs> no secret about it. No complexity to it. The Word of God grows. How does it grow? What does that mean? Well, it grows in influence. It grows in power. It grows intensively and extensively. It grows deep by penetrating hearts and putting down deep roots in Christians, and it spreads wide through evangelistic relationships and public proclamation. When churches do not have effective, happy, holy, wise, peacekeeping, unity-repairing, reliable, responsible deacons... The Word of God gets neglected and ministry comes to a grinding halt because of challenges from within. When churches do have effective, happy, holy, wise, peacekeeping, unity-repairing, responsible, faithful, reliable deacons, the Word of God 
increases and spreads outside the church and bears good fruit inside the church through the very power and responsibility and peacekeeping influence of diaconal service. Complaints are quieted because needs are met. Preachers are released for devotion to the word and prayer without having to wonder, are our elderly people being taken care of? The church is mobilized to serve. The corporate testimony of the church is protected from the blight of infighting. We're overhearing our complaints about not being served or being underserved. Growing pains are managed because the deacons are functioning like ibuprofen in the body. Hey, here. This is, this is what the apostles are doing. Here, take this. Take seven of these and call me in the morning. Right? They reduce the inflammation in the body of Christ. That's what deacons do. And the body is now healthy enough to build itself up in love. When deacons are doing their jobs, elders are free to do theirs. And they're not the same jobs. If the congregation had not done its part here, if deacons had not stepped up, if the apostles had not led the church to take responsibility for itself, the church would have become nothing more than a glorified soup kitchen. The point of all this is that growing churches need deacons so God's word can grow in and through the church. Growing churches need deacons so God's word can grow in and through the church. This is not a luxury. This is a necessity. Deacons are not a luxury for elitist or introvert pastors. You shouldn't just think, ah, they just want deacons because they don't want to do the dirty work. But they have a responsibility. Well, yes, we do have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to develop leaders and servants so that the whole congregation can serve itself and build itself up in love without the elders having to do all the lifting. Deacons are a necessity for churches that want to maintain an effective preaching and prayer ministry while managing the growing needs that come with growing numbers. You will be the winner, congregation. You will be the winners. When you know who your deacon-qualified people are, and when those people step in to the role and fulfill it without using their other roles and sorrows and responsibilities in life as excuses not to serve. I'm sure that Prochorus and Nicanor and Parmenas and Timon, they had a lot of other stuff going on, man. Right? Like, why do you think anybody had a good opinion of them in the first place? Because they did stuff. Why do you have a good opinion of anybody in this church? Because they do stuff. And they handle it. Those are the people that get asked to do more stuff. The people that get asked to do stuff are the people that are already doing stuff. And they got plenty of stuff to do. And they could say, I got too much to do. But they don't do that. 
that keep stepping up and stepping in. God's word grew in effectiveness and in extensiveness as Christ's people served Christ's purposes within Christ's church. Internal squabbles, refusal of the congregation to meet its own needs, slows the church down. Willing, qualified servants speed up the progress of the word of God. A few applications. First of all, elder-led congregationalism is biblical. That's why we've organized the church as we have in terms of authority relationships between elders, deacons, congregation. Look again at the decisioning model. A problem arises. The apostles call a members meeting about it. They bring that problem and a proposed solution already to the congregation, which does imply, yes, the apostles probably did talk to each other beforehand before they called the members meeting. They knew how to lead and where they wanted to lead the congregation before they led the members meeting. But then they call the members meeting. The solution itself demands congregational thought, decision, and service. The congregation acts, selects, and presents its seven choices to the elders. The elders appoint them, and then the elders trust those servants to do what needs to be done without holding their hand or micromanaging them. The elders hand it over to the proto-deacons. The apostles are not the solution. The apostles are not the solution. The apostles lead the congregation to become its own solution. You find qualified people who will take the responsibility and will hand it over to them and we will trust them to handle it themselves so we can stay devoted to prayer and public word ministry. That's how it's supposed to work. But before we get too far, we need to recognize that elders need to listen. Elders need to listen. And this is a hard part of leadership. And sometimes, as apparently in Acts 6, leaders have to receive anonymous complaints through the grapevine. I'll be honest with you, that is one of my least favorite parts of being an elder. Hearing complaints about the church that originate with people who will not approach me or the elders directly. I hate that. I hate it not because it's a moral atrocity or wrong. Don't get me wrong. I hate it because it makes me feel defensive, both for myself and for my church, without knowing where to look or who exactly it is that I'm supposed to be talking to or mollifying. Now, it probably shouldn't make me feel defensive. But it does. I'm probably wrong to feel defensive like that. But hearing anonymous complaints from third parties does make me feel defensive. And it probably makes you feel defensive too, if you've ever had that experience. 
Anybody ever come to you in this church and say, hey, you know, I don't want to betray any confidences because I told this person I would never tell you. But the word on the street about you is... Now, what's the first thing that's going to cross your mind when you hear that? Who said that about me? Who said that about the way I do ministry? Who said that about the way I conduct myself here? Who said that about my parenting? What? Where am I? Who's, the, who's hiding behind a pew? Come out here and face me like a man. You know? Like, that's, that's how we feel. You get offensive. So just understand it. Understand the dynamic. Hearing feedback through indirect grumbling is bad. And grumbling is probably, usually, it's sinful. But Jesus dealt with it in us, and so elders have to deal with it periodically in congregations, and dealing with it patiently, gently, wisely, and often openly in a congregational meeting is part of being a Christ-like elder. The grumbling in Acts 6 was sinful, even though it was understandable. Luke presents it as sin by using the word for grumbling that reminds us of Israel's grumbling in the wilderness. It's not morally neutral. But look at how the apostles handled it. They're not defensive at all. This is really admirable. In fact, they go the other way. They brought private grumbling to a public members meeting for a congregational solution. They don't chastise the congregation for grumbling. They listen, and then they entrust the congregation with the solution. Again, that is elder-led congregationalism. The apostles are really admirable here because the temptation is to take it personally. Now, maybe Peter and John and James were privately you know, going to bed, looking at their wounds. Oh, poor me. But that's not what makes it into the narrative, is it? <laughs> they don't take it personally. They take it back to the congregation, and they say, hey, let's, let's handle this together, okay? Now, what kind of people make good deacons? Well, deacons are the Christians who understand the deaconing dynamic of the gospel and who have experienced it in their own lives. The first qualification for a deacon or deaconess is to know Jesus personally as the consummate deacon of your soul. You will not be a good servant of the church if you don't understand this and if you have not experienced it and if you're not experiencing it daily. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Friend, do you know Jesus as the deacon of your heart? You can't serve like this if you have not been served like this by Jesus. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know the dynamic yet. And so everything is going to feel like an imposition to you. Everything's going to feel inconvenient. Everything's going to feel, why do I have to do that? I got a job. I got kids. I've got this thing. Yeah, we all got them. Do you realize what Jesus left to become the deacon of your heart? He left the throne of heaven. 
I mean, Jesus had a family. Jesus had a father in heaven, unbroken, perfect fellowship with his father. You think he didn't have an excuse to say, nah, I don't think this is a good time. I've got too much on my plate. I don't have the margin. Are you kidding me? Which Jesus do you think you serve? Which Jesus has served you? He served you to his own excruciating death on a cross in your place on the cross where you should have been hanging for your sins. He took your cross before you ever took one up to follow him. He is not asking you to do nearly anything that he has not done himself for you. His cross forgave your sins, broke their power, canceled their penalty, will one day abolish their presence. Jesus served you, Christian. He was, abo he was above serving you. He really was above serving you. You realize that, don't you? He, he, he was above you. You really were beneath him. He did not have to take an interest in you. He did not have to inconvenience himself. He did not have to miss out on unbroken fellowship with his Father around all the holy angels in heaven. He did not have to confine himself to a human body for the rest of his eternal existence. Just for you. But he didn't act like that, did he? He was above it. But he didn't act like he was above it, did he? No, no, that's the beauty of the gospel. He came down from his transcendent throne to serve your grumbling soul and make you grateful instead. Now, what is a fitting response to being served by such a transcendent and gracious king is it just to take it for granted? Is it just to treat his body as a place where you get served, where you get to be the 80% watching the other 20% do everything? No, no, no. What could be more fitting than serving each other toward the building up of Jesus' corporate body here in the church? Maybe to your own hurt. To your own inconvenience, certainly. Deacons also realize that service is necessarily sacrificial. John Engel James, I was just reading this, I had no idea this would be relevant to the ser sermon. John Engel James is talking about the family. Uh, the secrets? Helps to, happy, help, helps to domestic happiness, I think. Is the, it's a great little book. He says this in 1828. About, about marriages, about married people and their relationship to serving in the church. 1828. Been around for a long time. 
the pleasures of home must not be allowed to interfere with the calls and claims of public duty. We have known some who, till they entered into wedded life, were the pillars of our institutions, who yield so far to the solicitations of their new and dearest earthly friend, their new spouse, as to vacate their seat on the board of management forever after. It is, I admit, a costly way of contributing to the cause of religion and humanity to give those evening hours which could be spent so pleasantly at hearth and home. But who can do good or ought to wish to do it without sacrifices? We got lots of young couples with young families here. We all need to hear it. Is it a sacrifice to serve as a deacon? Yes. Nobody's trying to convince you otherwise. We're not trying to deceive you. It's a sacrifice to serve as a deacon. Your family will see you a little less. You will see your family a little less. You won't be able to engage your hobbies as much. You're going to have to keep work in the box. Yes, it is a sacrifice. Is it a worthy sacrifice? Is it a Christian sacrifice? Yes. 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 Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. He's not talking about divorcing your wife or husband. Of course not. He's talking about leaving them for a little while to serve him and his purposes in the church. You think that you can find that in your heart to serve Jesus like that? When he's the one who gave you that family in the first place? Think about that promise on the way out the door to serve in the church on a rainy, cold night when you would much rather just sit by your gas logs and watch a game or a Hallmark movie with your wife. I get it. Jesus left the pleasures of his house and his Father in heaven to serve you. It is only fitting then for you to return the favor by leaving spouse and children at home periodically to serve Jesus in the church. Wife, husband, don't be a hindrance to your spouse in serving the church. Don't be like, oh, do you have to go again? Yeah, yeah, I do. Because who else is going to do it? Because everybody else has got a family too. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That, that is your response to your spouse when they get tired of you serving the church. Now again, don't neglect your family. Nobody's asking you to do that. We're asking you not to worship your family. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So how can we come to church not to serve, but to be served and to let other people give their lives so that we can stay selfish? Doesn't work like that. That's an anti-gospel. Friend, if that's how you think and act, I'm not sure what you mean by calling yourself a Christian. By calling yourself by Christ's name, a member of his body. I mean, if that's how you think and you live, 
then you may say you believe in Jesus, but Jesus doesn't believe you when you say that. Put your money where your mouth is. You might fool us, but you're not going to fool him. To be a deacon, you need to be exemplary in Christian character, conduct, and commitment. This is not out of reach for any of you. People need to be able to look at deacons and think that person's really good at carrying out the church covenant. They attend every time the doors are open. They're consistent. They're reliable. When the elders ask them to do something, they do it. Or even better, these people anticipate needs, see needs, meet needs without ever having to be reminded or even asked. In other words, they're Christians, and they're good at being Christians. They're faithful, they're available, they manage their lives so they have time and energy and margin to give themselves away for others and not just for their families. Now, deacons are not people who always resonate with congregational criticism of the church or its leaders. They're not like political candidates who always run on a platform of either hope and change or draining the swamp. Deacons are not complainers themselves. Deacons are people who move towards conflict and complaint with a calming presence. And I've seen that in some of you. Deacons are people who are so happy with the word ministry of the elders that they want to help the congregation see that the elders need to be free to serve the word in prayer. And that serving the word and praying is how the elders serve and love the congregation best. Deacons also understand that shepherding by the elders does not mean that they give in to every bleeding of every sheep. Shepherding means feeding the sheep, leading them to obey Jesus, helping them to grow strong so they can help others grow strong. It's not merely therapeutic. Yes, there is a healing aspect to it. That's usually for a limited time and purpose. Shepherding is normally developmental, instructional, formative, sometimes corrective, and focused on proclaiming God's word for God's people both privately and publicly and developing other men who can do the same thing. Deacons serve to care for task-specific needs that protect, promote, and prepare, repair unity among members. The apostles said they'd, lay, they'd hand this task or literally this need over to the proto-deacons. So we take that to imply that there can be as many deacons in a church as there are task-specific needs to meet. Lots of practical and financial needs come up in the church. We could have a deacon of member care, handling needs of the elderly or those who have other difficulties that make it difficult for them to care for themselves, even just physically. We have a deacon of building and grounds, deacon of sound, deacon of, deaconess of hospitality, which we have, deacon, deacon of ushers, deacon of ordinances, deacon or deaconess of children's ministry, deacon of budget. I mean, we have 69 members and 51 minors. If we're not careful, if we don't handle our children well, we're going to annoy each other a lot, right? It's the kind of thing. Deacon of budget, deacon of administration, deacon of almost anything you can think of that serves the congregation so that the congregation doesn't feel neglected and so the elders can concentrate their attention and energy on prayer and the word. I know a church who had 13 weddings in a single year, and so they appointed a deaconess of weddings to coordinate receptions. I know a church who has a deacon of parking because their parking lot is small and landlocked and street parking is sparse in their city. And of course, some needs are only temporary. Maybe you only need a deaconess of weddings for a few years in your church and then that position just goes away because you don't need it anymore. Deacons are also the main need meters and human resource deployers of the congregation. 
Elders are the shepherds. We graze you on the word, gather you together, guard you from false teaching, guide you in obedience. We cannot do all of that and meet every practical need that arises among different demographics and corners of the congregation. We do, however, guide, train, and equip you through the ministry of the word so that you can take responsibility for needs as they arise and so that you learn that you can actually gather a whole team of people around you to help you meet that need so that you don't have to serve in that deacon position forever, but you can raise up your own replacement. Elders guide the congregation to take responsibility for itself in meeting its own needs. So if we're all on a bus... Elders are driving, navigating, setting direction. Deacons are the ones who manage the gas, distribute the food, tell us how far to the next stop. So if the elders say, we're going to Nashville, the deacons can say, we're on board, we want to go to Nashville, we love Nashville. The only problem is we only have enough gas to get to Indianapolis, but the deacons cannot say we'd rather go to Minneapolis. It's a different direction. It's the elder's job to set direction and vision. It's the deacon's job to help get us all there in one piece without a food fight in the church van. So if you love the ministry of the Word, then you should seriously think about why you are not moving towards being deacon qualified in your convictions, your character, and your competence. And in the orientation of your life around building up a local church where you love and serve through your love and service. You don't have to be competent to teach like Stephen and Philip were, but you do have to be full of the Spirit and meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 that were read earlier in the service. But friends, those qualifications open to anybody who is a Christian and a member of a church. To be a deacon, all you have to do is be an exemplary Christian and an exemplary church member. But if you don't want to be an exemplary Christian, an exemplary church member, then you've got way bigger fish to fry with Jesus. If being an exemplary Christian isn't on your radar, I'm not sure why you keep coming here. I mean, why don't you want to be a deacon? Is it the responsibility? Is it the time? Is it the energy? Is it the privacy? Is it the accountability? Those are all reasons people don't want to become members of churches to begin with. Those are reasons that people don't want to be Christians. Listen again to 1 Timothy 3. Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, I don't see why you wouldn't run straight after that kind of promise to catch it for yourself. Great confidence? Good standing? I'm in. Sign me up. Unless you just really don't believe this stuff. Men, women, all the qualifications that we read earlier, those are in reach for all of you who are members. Some of you are ready, but you need to be tested. So pass the tests. What are those tests? Look over the church covenant again. Attend, love, pray, be holy, give, disciple and encourage others, serve, keep your relationships in good repair, keep your home in order, discharge simple responsibilities when the elders give them to you, work together kindly with others, it's not rocket science, man. Of course, the world has a phrase for taking on a role like a deacon in a church. They call it borrowing trouble. Why would you borrow trouble like this? Why would you become a deacon in a local church full of grumbling sinners like us when deaconing can often require tamping down our tempers when we're mad at you? 
Well, isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Jesus borrowed our trouble. Jesus bought our trouble with his blood. Made it all his own. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus himself was the original and consummate deacon. He approached us and served us when we were still his enemies. We were the ones grumbling against God the Father as if he had been holding out on us, refusing to let us have the knowledge of good and evil on our own terms. It never dawned on us that God was actually protecting us by saying no to us, and yet we wouldn't hear it. So we grumbled our way into sin and rebellion, into disobedience and death and hell. Isn't that what Eve did? She grumbled against God when she said to Satan, God said that you should not eat of the fruit of the tree of, that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. God didn't say that. She's grumbling. But God sent Jesus, and Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He deaconed a grumbling people, John 7, 12, and there was much muttering, grumbling about him among the people. He healed their bodies, forgave their sins anyway, showed them mercy. Even though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself and took the form not merely of a servant, but of a slave, a doulos. And he died a slave's death on the cross for our grumbling and complaining against his father. And that, Christian, is why you should aspire to be a deacon or deaconess in this church. We serve grumbling people because Jesus first served us when we were grumbling people. That is how you show other people what the gospel is and has done for you. It's not a guilt motivation. It's gospel motivation. It's how we know Jesus, not only in the power of his resurrection, but also in the fellowship of his sufferings. That's real intimacy with Christ. That's not turning the screws on you. It's gospel breaking your heart, softening your face, unfurrowing your brow, and making you hang your head wondering how you could respond in any other way than by humble service so that others might move from grumbling to gratitude with you. Charles Spurgeon said, Endeavor now to bring forth fruit. Serve God now, but be careful to do it with all your might. Do it promptly. Do not fritter away your life in thinking what you intend to do tomorrow as if that could recompense for the idleness of today. No man ever served God by doing things tomorrow. If we honor Christ and are blessed, it is by the things which we do today. Today. Jesus served you to his own death. How are you serving him in the life of his church? Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we have all been selfish with our discretionary time, with our resources, with our energy, with our thoughts, with our love. We've held back from you what is rightfully yours. We've held ourselves back from you and from each other. We pray that you would forgive us and that as you held nothing back, Father, you gave to us your only begotten Son. And Jesus, you gave your life and your body so that we would give our lives, our energies, our sleep, 
our convenience, our pain. We would give it to you. We would give it to your church for your purposes and your glory in the world. And that we would love one another not merely in word, but in deed and in truth. For Jesus' sake, amen.